All right, good morning. Hey, talk to me now. Quit talking. Talk to me. Good morning. Welcome to Seacoast. Welcome to Seacoast. I love the sound of you uh, welcoming one another and uh, showing the love of Christ to those who may be new here. And if you're new, my name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the teaching pastors here and privileged to do that with Pastor Ryan and uh, would love to meet you out in the plaza afterwards. Uh, And if you're new, donuts are on me. How's that? Is that a good deal? Huh? Yeah, now if you're not, then you're on your own. But anyway, no. Hey, welcome to Seacoast. We love to worship by looking at God's Word together. So open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Good guess. Good guess. It's right up there. And after last week, you should have your bookmarker. I've got mine, so it's not hard to find, right? Go right to the book of Ezra. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Wow, thank you for your Word Thank you for what we learn, Father, as we study it together. Thank you that you're a God that communicates. We can't see you. We can't literally hear you. But we thank you that you're a God that wants us to both see and hear and know you. So we pray that through your word as we study it together that you would reveal yourself to us more clearly, help us to really get you into focus, and help us to see you in relation to our lives. First with the life and the story of Ezra and his times. And, but teach us through your word. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to study two great chapters in Ezra today. We're going to cover almost all of chapters 1 and 2. So open your Bibles and get ready to go quick. You also should take out your outline. Maybe you say, I never use that thing. You're going to need it today if you're going to keep up and really understand this story. And you're going to learn a little more if you do. So my encouragement every week is to uh, utilize that little tool and the Bible studies on the back of it throughout the week. So let me just remind you, and if you're new, you'll, uh, you'll get in the habit of doing that. I want you to imagine with me that the year is 1945, or to round it off, 1946. The war has ended. Now the war I'm talking about is the it's World War II. But you've got to imagine with me for a moment that the ending was not like it was in our history. Imagine that one little thing happened, and to be honest, it is not beyond imagination. I'm thankful it didn't happen, but imagine for a minute that the atom bomb had been first developed by Germany. And Hitler, with all of his evil intent... First dropped one on New York City, decimating all of New York, leveling it. Then he sent a message that said, give me your unconditional surrender or I'll drop another one. We didn't believe it was possible. So he dropped a second one on Washington, D.C., Leveled it. No White House, no Capitol, no Pentagon. It's all gone. 
And he sent another message that said, I want your unconditional surrender. I want to drop the next one on Los Angeles and then Chicago and, and then Atlanta and then Miami until I completely decimate your entire country. So imagine that after that, the remains of our government would have said, all right, we surrender. You realize that was 70 years ago this year? 1946 would have been 70 years ago. If that had happened in 1946, for the last 70 years, this would have happened. Imagine if Hitler also would have followed the pattern of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in the days that we are studying. In order to get rid of our culture and, and to acclimate us to the thinking of Nazism, he would have taken all of the best and the brightest of our men and women in 1946, and he would have moved them all to Germany <clears throat> to live under his control, to learn his philosophy, to learn his language. How would that have affected your life? Now picture yourself in that story. For some of you, you would have been moved with your parents as a young boy or a young girl in 1946. For me, I wasn't even born yet. So my mom and my dad would have been exiled to Germany. They would have grown up learning German. I would be speaking German today. My parents would have died in Germany. Perhaps yours would have too. I would have grown up there. I would have had my children. And today, my wife and I and our children and our grandchildren would all be living in Germany. But yet trying to hold on to our beliefs and values which we had heard stories about from our parents. But we had never really experienced directly ourselves. So we're trying to hold on to our identity as Americans living in exile. But yet we're living in Germany, we speak German, we're, we're inclimated into that culture. And all of a sudden, imagine if another ruler arose... And for sake of illustration, maybe this ruler arose out of, oh, say the Middle East. And this powerful ruler got so powerful that even though Germany controlled all of Europe and all of the, the United States and, and, and you know, all of this huge territory, this new ruler came and conquered the successor of Hitler. And now... We're a part of a different empire, but it's even a bigger empire, even more powerful than that. And then good news happens. Imagine if that new ruler suddenly said, by decree, God has stirred my heart, and even though I worship other gods, your God has stirred my heart 
to tell all of the Americans who are living in exile and have been doing so for 70 years in exile, you can now return to your land and rebuild it. Can you imagine how you would feel? Man, you would be excited. But you'd think, you know, I've never been to that land. I'm not sure what's there. I'm not sure what's left. And I know whatever's left has been decimated by those who have conquered us. And, and, and who are we? We're a bunch of refugees. So now a whole bunch of refugees are, are turned loose to return and somehow rebuild their land. You'd be excited, right? Would you be afraid? Yeah. Excitement, fear, anticipation, concern. How do we do this? How in the world can we pull this off? And you'd probably be wondering, why did God let us be in exile for so long that we as kids, even my age, I would have been born in exile? And now... I'm going to go home to this new land. And I tell you that story because as I've been spending time in the book of Ezra, I think it's hard for me to really capture what's been going on if I don't put it into my generation, into my story. Because what this means is these returnees that we're about to study today are mostly men and women who were born in exile. Very few of them, a few of the very oldest ones, would have remembered the, the days in which they still worshipped their God in their promised land, in their temple, before it was all destroyed in 586 B.C. But now, 70 years later, actually it will end up being 70 years when the story ends, but about 50 years later, we're being told, now you can go back and start the process of rebuilding. But as you do that, you've got to kind of wonder, okay, how in the world are we going to do this? Ryan set the tone last week, and just by way of review, because some of you probably missed it, let me just read the verses that he taught us last week as he did a great job of introducing this study of Ezra. It begins in Ezra chapter 1. Pick it up with me. Verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus would be like the guy that conquers Hitler and throws him out and now he's in charge. Okay? He says, now a new guy, not, not Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire that led them into exile, but now a new empire, the Persian empire, much bigger, that controlled most of the, of the world that day, all the way from like portions of India, all the way to the edge of probably Greece. Picture all of that. They were the, he was the big dog. And now Cyrus, it says, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, by the way, who worshipped other gods, so that he sent a proclamation through all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house back in Jerusalem, which is in Ju Judah. Whoever there is among you, you of all his people, may his God be with him. 
Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Israel, which is in Jerusalem. And that's where we left off last week. So the opening is there to go home. The opening is there to rebuild. But now the question of today is how in the world do they do that? And the question we're going to look at together is not just how does God do big things? But how does God do big things through little people like you and me, through a bunch of ragtag refugees who are going to return to do an amazing project of rebuilding the temple? And you may think, well, that's not a big deal. Just go home and build a building, right? But it becomes a big deal if you go back in the history and you begin to recognize what a challenge this was. You see, Israel's worship of their God was centered in a great temple because at that time, the emphasis was, God said, build a tremendous temple for me that will be the focus of your worship. It's a symbol of my presence in the midst of your nation." We know that God is not contained in buildings, but in the Old Testament, the temple was the symbol of the presence of God. God, in a very special sense, dwelt there among his people. And if you want to worship your God, you'd go to his temple and worship. It was the center of their worship and of their life. We'll see that even more next week when we go to chapter 3 in this book. But you've got to remember, the temple was a great thing. The stories, they had heard about it. King David had dreamed it with God, his son Solomon, at the height of the success and the power and the wealth of Israel, had built it with great wealth. In fact, it was so magnificent, it took an estimated 150,000 people to build it over many years. This is a depiction of the temple, just a portion of it. This was a magnificent structure and it took great time and energy of 150,000 people working on it to construct it so now they're being told to go back and to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the nation that had been decimated probably even though they didn't have atomic bombs but believe me when the Babylonians wiped out something they wiped it out So they have to go and they have to rebuild this thing. But this time it's not being rebuilt by Solomon with all of his wealth, but by a a group of refugees that are being sent home out of exile. After 70 years in captivity, they will rebuild this. They say it's happening to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. What is that? Here it is. Listen to it. Jeremiah said, Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. In other words, he had just said, I want to, you're going to be conquered by Babylon. You're going to be taken into captivity. But then he says, he says, then after 70 years, I will punish that nation for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Verse, chapter 29, verse 10 puts it this way. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. 
And about, it's estimated in that time even that about 70,000 people were taken to Babylon. And what they did was they didn't take the average servant worker. They took the brightest and the best. Remember the story of Daniel? How Daniel was selected because he was a young man with great wisdom and intelligent and athletic and sharp. And so basically in 1946, all the best and brightest would have been taken to Germany. In 586, all the best and brightest were taken away to Babylon. So what was left behind were just simply the poor and the common man were left behind. And uh, they were under the rule of this empire. But God said, I'm going to bring you back. And what we are studying from now and for the next eight more weeks beyond this is this grand story in Ezra that, that, that Ryan introduced where we're talking about them returning. Now, it's easy to think, well, good grief, Ezra, you know, it's not that long. I mean, it's, it's only, what, it's only ten chapters. So in these ten chapters, you could read this in just a few minutes. But this is a story from Ezra 1 to Ezra 10. This is a story of them really returning in three waves. There's the return of the wave with Zerubbabel that we're going to look at today. Later in the book, we're going to see the story where, they come, where Ezra himself comes back. And then we're going to see the story where Nehemiah comes back. And in all, we're talking about around 100 years to do all of this. The rebuilding of this temple itself that we're about to study is actually about a 23-year process as we figure out the dating of this. So this is not a boom, we read it, it's done, easy. This is the beginning of a very big project that was tough to come back out of exile and to rebuild. So the theme of today as we get started again in this is this. If this is what this story is all about, What do we learn first about their story when they are called to build a house for God? And then secondly, we're going to conclude by briefly looking at what do we learn about our story because we are called to be a house for God. They are called to build a house for God. We are called to be a house for God. Very subtle but very important difference. But in both cases, God is looking to establish a, quote, building that will display his glory, demonstrate his love, demonstrate his presence and power to the world in both stories, their story and our story. So what did we learn first about their story? Well, I knew that we wouldn't have time in one message to go into the details of everything in this passage. But So what I've done is I've given you a summary typed out that you can read this week as you read it on your own, but it's in this box, but let me just click through it. It begins with the message that Ryan introduced last week, that God begins the process. They don't begin the process, God does. This is God's story. And in verse 4, we already studied last week that God stirred the heart of the king to turn them loose to return. But not only did God stir the heart of the king, he began to stir the heart of his people. Pick it up now in verse 5. He says, Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose, whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those, all those about them, or all those who live near them, you could translate it, encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. So what's happening here is this. 
God is stirring the heart of the king, then he stirs the heart of the leaders in verse 5, and the leaders begin to say, we're in this thing, we're going to go do this. The people begin to catch the vision from the leaders. So notice first that God usually stirs the hearts of leaders before he stirs the hearts of people. That's true in our church as well. It's true in anything. But he stirs their hearts, they begin to give in verse 6 with generosity. In fact, the generosity is not just the people that are going to return, but as the King Cyrus had decreed, he said, let those who are near them contribute also. So it's kind of like in every area of of that part of the world, if someone says, I'm in, I'm going back, then the other other Jews near them would say, okay, uh, we're not ready to go back yet, you know, for various reasons. We either can't or don't want to go back, but we'll help you out. So they begin to take offerings and bring their wealth, and they begin to collect the wealth from all of these people to help finance the project. So the people respond with generosity, returnees and their neighbors. Because as I said, in, in the study of this book, there's going to be three different waves of people returning. The wave that returns under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the wave that returns with Ezra, and then the wave that returns with Nehemiah toward the end of the book. And over this whole period, beginning to end, it's about a hundred years. From the decree to turn them loose to go back, to going back, rebuilding the temple reforming the people, Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Just think of it this way. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, Ezra reforms the people, and then Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. And from beginning to end, you're talking, I think, about 100 or 106 years. The king responds by helping out as well. Verse 7, pick it up. It says, also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. You see, back then, it was like, okay, my God beats your God, then I get to take all the goodies out of your God's temple, and I'm going to put them in the temples to my gods because they're in submission to my gods. It was a, it was a, it was a disgraceful way of, of uh, dishonoring the God of Israel to say, I'll take the things out of the temple of Israel and we're going to put it in the, our gods. We'll put, you know, we'll put them there. So, so, but they had kept these things. Well, Cyrus gets those things, gives them back, and he says, take these things back where they belong. When you rebuild the temple, you can restore those. So he gives that, and he contributes to the cost of the project. Cyrus, the king of Persia, had brought them out by the hand of Methradoth, By the way, here's the tip. When you read long names in the Bible, just read them fast and act like you know how to pronounce them and don't hesitate. That's my number one rule, by the way. So don't go out and say, Dale said it's pronounced this way. Who cares? Okay. Or give them a nickname like Myth. Okay, Myth the Treasurer. Okay, so Myth the Treasurer counted them out and Shebazar, Shebazar, yeah, or Shezi, I'll call him Shezi, the Prince of Judah, who, by the way, people aren't sure who this is. It's probably an appointed treasurer that Cyrus appointed to, uh, to oversee this project and make sure that what he wanted done actually got done. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30, those are Tupperware, 30 gold bowls, that was a joke, you missed it, 30 gold bowls. Does Tupperware still exist? Uh, maybe I'm just dating my generation. No, Okay. 30 gold bowls, 70 silver bowls, 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. 
Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, let me just kind of pause just for a minute to point out something to you. You say, why did God in his holy word inspire all this detail? We're going to see a lot of detail in chapter 2. It's because details matter. If you're talking about real history in real time. This is not a mythological story. This is real history in real time with real people and real dates. And I think God wants to reinforce to us, this really happened. Take this seriously. He also wants to reinforce to us that that God is bringing together the resources to provide what they want, God wants them to do, and every gift matters. Small gifts, large gifts. We're going to see that every gift matters, and we're going to see in a minute that every person matters. They even count the people. It's an important lesson that we'll apply in a minute as we review toward the end of the message. God raises up the leadership because you've got to have leaders. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Now these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judea and Judah, each to his city. So they didn't just come back to Jerusalem. They're coming back to, in, to inhabit the land. These came up with Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel is named first, most likely because we see in the story that he is the key one leading this group of exiles back to the land. But he has a group of ten other guys, Jeshua, Nehemiah, which is not the Nehemiah of later fame, but probably a different Nehemiah, Zerahah, Rech, Mordecai, Bilshan, Bizpar, all these guys, Bigva. I love that. There's a name for the next baby in the room down front here, I think. Big Va. Yeah, or just call him Big for short. Right, right. So you, you've got these ten leaders mentioned along with Zerubbabel. And then he provides not only leadership, you, you, he provides the workforce, the number of men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, and, and, and they name all these people, and they give the exact numbers of their descendants. Because realize that when it says the sons of... The, the phrase in Hebrew, the sons of, doesn't literally mean that the, chi- the child of, as in son or daughter. It means the descendants of. That phrase is often used in Hebrew to mean the descendants of these people. So it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that uh, Parash, Parash had 2,172 children. <laughs> That's a busy wife. Yeah. But the descendants, so he names the descendants of each of these family lines. And then he provides spiritual leadership. Verse 36, the priests were provided to go back. And he names several of the, of the families of the priesthood who went back. And the Levites came back. You say, wait a minute, I thought priests were Levites. Well, true. You need to realize that all, all priests were Levites the descendants of Levi, but not all Levites were priests, okay? So you had, you had Levites who served as priests, you had other Levites who did not serve as priests. So you have 
the priests returning, you have Levites returning, who were often uh, assistants and helped in the temple. And then you had a category called the temple servants in verse 43. These were family lines that served in the temple. So you have. So what he's doing is he's providing for not only the physical rebuilding of the temple, but the spiritual needs of the people. Just notice that. Because God in the end, by the way, what do you think is going to matter to God more at the end of this story? The, the quality of the temple or the quality of the people? It's going to be the quality of the people. Because here's one little lesson you can tuck away right now. This is a bonus for the morning. Okay? That's this. That God always, when he builds projects, builds people. And in fact, the building of the project is usually designed to develop the people. I'll tell you one thing. At every church I've ever pastored, we've built buildings. Uh, it's just part of the, the history that's been part of my story. And every time we began to realize, you know, something God really cares a lot more about building us than building this crazy building. Because God wants to develop his people. We're going to see that. He lists the workforce. He lists the spiritual leaders. And if you total it all up, he actually gives us a total in verse 64. Here it is. The whole assembly numbered 42,360. Besides, also, their male and female servants who numbered another 7,337, give or take one. And they had 200 singing men and women. That's quite a choir. And their horses and their mules and their camels and their donkeys. So he adds all this up and he says some of the heads, you know, if you add all, if you do the math, by the way, here's the math for you on the screen. It's just short of 50,000. So just round it off. There were about 50,000 coming back from the exile. And then I love this conclusion to our passage. The people unite and sacrifice to get it done. Look at verse uh, 68. Some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, which was in ruin, they offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. Let's start with the foundation. And according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. And now the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their cities and all of Israel in their cities. And I want to conclude by going one verse into chapter 3. Now when the seventh month came, so after seven more months of collecting all the materials, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Unity. So what we see there is they unify to accomplish and to attack this big project. So what is the big idea of chapters 1 and 2? Here it is. I like to boil it down to one simple statement if you want to write it down. The big idea is this. God does big stuff. He does big projects with a lot of little people who are united in the pursuit of one purpose, His purpose. That's how you get it done. And this is the big idea I want us to take away today is that God does big projects. When God attacks something like the rebuilding of his land and his city and his temple, and he's going to do it with a bunch of refugees, he's going to do it, how's he going to do that? He does it with a lot of little people who unite under God to pursue his purpose. That's how God gets things done. Because, oh yeah, one more thing, and they're willing to persevere. Add that. 
and they're willing to persevere. Bingo. See how quick they type in the back there? Yeah. And they're willing to persevere. Because what we're talking about is a rebuilding of just the temple is going to take 23 years. 23 years. That's almost a lifetime for a lot of these people at that time. So how do we apply this 2,500 years later? Let's fast forward to 2016 and draw a few comparisons quickly to our story. Because they were called to build a house for God that would display His glory to the nations, a symbol of His presence in their midst. I think God calls us as His church to be a house for God, and He actually uses a lot of the same building-type language. So God is still building a temple, a house for God. That's the first point if you want to write it in. Ephesians chapter 2, you can turn from Ezra now back to Ephesians And listen to Ephesians 2.19 and listen to the symbolism. So then, Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That is, you're not just people living in a foreign land, but you are now citizens with the saints. And you are God's household, God's family having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy what? Temple. A holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What he's saying is we the church are like, the house of God. God now dwells not in buildings, He dwells in people, and He dwells in His church. Secondly, we learn that the foundation was laid by the apostles and the prophets. So he says the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Why that? I think it's because they're the ones who gave us the Scriptures. He's really talking about the Word of God. He lays the Word of God down as a foundation for us to build on, but he wants us to realize the real important thing is the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Everything leans on Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate cornerstone around which the entire building is aligned. Jesus is our ultimate, most important stone in the building. If you compare this to 1 Peter chapter 2, Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. Okay, go to Hebrews and keep moving. 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to just two verses, and listen to the building language. And coming to Christ as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is now the chief, the, the choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, you've been brought alive in Christ, As living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is this. You, like every follower of Jesus, is a unique, valuable part of the house. I love the fact all these people are mentioned in Ezra. All the individuals are named. All of them are counted because every person matters. And what he's saying is that when you're a part of the church of Christ, you're like one more stone as God is building this building called his 
family, his temple, his house, his kingdom. God is building his church. And you as a follower of Jesus are a valuable part of the building. Even though you're just like one stone. Doesn't matter. God values your contribution to the body of Christ. Every follower of Jesus is a valued part of the house. Just one little picture that kind of illustrates this is a picture of our tutoring ministry. I love the fact that we are a multi-generational bunch of stones. Some of us as stones have been around a little longer than others. On your far left is Doris. Is Doris here today? I'm scanning. She'll probably be here in the second service. Oh, where is she? Oh, she's working in the nursery. What's she doing that for? I need her in here. What a great illustration. See? Doris, I think she just celebrated her 93rd birthday. Or 94. Which one? 93, 94. I lose track after I go above 90. Which one is it? 94. Thank you for correcting me. 94 years old. Serving alongside teenagers. There's Melinda in there somewhere too, I think. She's somewhere around 29 or so. But anyway, whatever age you happen to be, serving together to expand his kingdom in ministry, different generations all together. That's what the body of Christ is like. And why do we do all this? We are, next point, a holy priesthood, he says in 1 Peter, called to offer spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2.5. Wow. See, he just goes right back to the Old Testament language. See, to rebuild the temple, they were going to rebuild this physical temple. They needed priests who would help people go to the temple and worship and, and, and connect with God. That's what a priest did. Well, guess what? He says, now all of us are priests because God's not building physical temples anymore. This church building is not a temple. Don't call it one. In fact, you shouldn't even call this room a sanctuary. Because this is not where God dwells. God dwells in you through Jesus Christ. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Look it up. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you individually if you are a follower of Jesus. And He dwells in His church corporately as the body of Christ. Because we are, like that temple was the illustration of the presence of God, the glory of God, now he calls for us as the body of Christ to be that. See, then he was building a temple, now he's building a different kind of temple. It's made up of people. Common little people, like you and me, who together display the love of Jesus Christ. We put the love of Christ on display. We help people experience life because we are living stones. Sometimes we can be a little hard-headed, but we're still living stones, alive in Christ. And then finally, God's purpose for his house is the same then as it is now, or the same now as it was then, that is to be light. I'll conclude with one more verse, verse 9 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Awesome. Isn't that great? See, we 
You as an individual follower of Jesus, we as a church, we have a purpose to be light. That was true then, it's true today. You see, here's the deal. God, the builder, hasn't changed. That's not Bob the builder. Okay, I got tired of that song years ago. But God, the builder. How many of you had grandkids into Bob the builder? Was that just me? Was that not around here? Okay, yeah. God, the builder, hasn't changed. He's about building his people for his glory. To be light to a lost world that desperately needs it. That's our purpose. How's he going to get it done? Well, here's what we looked at earlier. The big idea is this. God still uses... God still wants to do big projects. I think he wants to do big things through our church. That doesn't mean that we have to be the biggest church in the world. It means that he wants to do big things through us because he wants us to have a big impact on Encinitas and on our world all the way to Africa. He cares that we love Encinitas. He cares that we love Africa. And he cares that, he, that whatever he calls us to do as a church, he will build it, he will accomplish it only if a lot of little people pursue a common purpose that he stirs up in our heart. And I think that purpose is to be a place of refuge for hurting people, a place of light for people in darkness, a place that's delivering life to people who are dead without Christ. A multi-generational, unified body of believers that says, all right, God, you tell us what you want to get done and we will, by your grace, by your power, we will attack it and go after it. Are you part of that? See, if not, you need to say, hey, Dale, I'm in. I'm in. I want to be part of the seacoast portion of the body of Christ and let's go make a difference in our world all the way from here to Africa starting in Encinitas starting with our neighbors across the street can we do that if we're willing to persevere got to keep adding that building this building was a 23 year process it wasn't like reading two or three or four chapters of the Bible are you willing to commit the next 23 years of your life to doing that I'm in. Are you in? Or are you perhaps living in Babylon and you've come so comfortable living in Babylon that when someone says, man, go do something for me, go do something for God, that you say, you know, I'm kind of comfortable just with the way my life is. Don't ask me to sacrifice my time, my money, and my life like they did. Don't miss your chance to be part of history. For heaven's sakes. Don't be like some of the Jews who stayed in Babylon and they died there. Because by the time Nehemiah leaves to bring the last wave back, most of those who stayed behind had already died. Don't miss the chance to make a difference for Christ. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for 
your call in our lives to, uh, to be a little part of a big kingdom and to make a real impact for you. We love you. So, Father, in our hearts now and in our spirit, we just pray and we pause and we say, uh, I invite every one of my friends here to say, Lord, um, just as it took a whole bunch of people who had different skills, some could simply cut stones, others could lay stones, others could decorate the temple. Others could cook the food to feed the workers. All of them could give something. Some could give a lot. Call us, Father, to um, simply say to you, Lord, I'm yours. I'm available. Send me into my world uh, to be light. In Christ's name we pray that. Amen.